ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Well, thank you, Governor, for being with us today. You know, uh, every time uh, that I think about you, I think about a conversation I had with my 17-year-old son who is uh, who works at Kroger. And during the campaign for governor, he would come in and he said, Bill Lee's going to win. At that point, you'd never served in elective office before you were third or fourth in the polls. He was one of seven people who thought that. When he <laughs> That's did right. It. And I said, well, I mean, it doesn't look like it. it looks like it's going to be so-and-so or so-and-so. And he just said, no. Bill Lee's going to win. People like him. And he kept saying that the entire way through. And I realized he actually had a more sophisticated polling apparatus uh, than just about anybody else, which was listening to the people as they were coming through the uh, coming through the uh, the checkout and saying they liked you and they also liked the way that you were running in a way that was unique. You weren't attacking people. You weren't uh, you weren't negative. And we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, a little bit later on. But before we do that. Uh, you're a Christian, know Jesus Christ, follower of, of Christ. How did how did you become a Christian? What's your story of life with Christ? Yeah, um, I I grew up in a in here out in the country, about 25 miles from here, so it's not so much country anymore. But I grew up out there, had a great family, godly family, went to church all my life. My family did, but I I say when I tell that story that I I knew God. And I knew who he was all my life. But when I went to college, I was confronted with a lot of folks that, uh, and a couple of them I lived with. I lived in a group, in a house with a bunch of guys, seven or eight guys, and a couple of them were believers, uh, were Christians. And they talked a lot about their faith, and they talked about the, the cross and the blood and Jesus and all of these things that I really didn't understand. And that's what uh, drew me to... And my my actual testimony about that is just drew me to laying in my bed one night alone and saying, you know, God, I know you and I love you, but I don't know what they're talking about, and I'd like to know. And and I quickly found out. He he quickly showed me. So I I came to know the the Lord when I was nineteen, and my life didn't change very much externally, but it began a process. My life 
changed forever, eternally, internally, and then that started a process of transformation for me that I hope never ends. Were there particular people that the Lord used in your life that you can think of? These are people the Lord really used to disciple me at kind of key moments in my life. Yeah, you know what? My, my, my first wife, um, my late wife, was the first person. I, I was so infatuated with her and, and was you know pursuing her and in love with her. And she was much more mature in her faith than I was. And so she was a person that inspired me for her to like me, I figured I needed to know a little bit more about uh, what she believed in. So she was forever, until until she passed away, she was forever a an inspiration to me spiritually. We, we were together in that, as, as I am with my wife today, who equally inspires me in my faith. But then there were a couple of pastors along the way, Don Fento, who's a senior leader in in this city in many ways, and a lot of the people in this room know him, and he's been a spiritual father to a lot of people in this community in a lot of ways. And uh, early on, my days in Belmont, and then my those were the early days of my development as a believer and really understanding what it meant to be a Christian. He had a profound impact on me and still does to this day. He and I still walk in Radnor Park together, uh, on a regular basis, he comes to and has dinner with me. On a regular, he profoundly has impacted me and always will. We were talking up in my office a little bit earlier. I had no idea that your late wife used to work for what's now known as Lifeway, previously yeah. the Baptist Sunday School Board, yep. as an illustrator. That's right. Uh, there was uh, a magazine, Encounter Magazine was one of them, and so uh, I, I thought that was, was remarkable. And you actually ended up a Lifeway cover boy at one point, <laughs> Yeah, you said. that's right. When your girlfriend is choosing photographs for the for Encounter magazine, you end up on it. But, yeah, she came to work here right out of right after college or shortly thereafter, and, and then I moved to Nashville, too, and we, when we dated, and then through marriage and the 16 years we were married, um, <clears throat> the first half of that she worked at, for the Sunday School Board until we had kids, and then she worked as an independent contractor for folks that work in the art department and Sunday School Board. So I have a long history here. You've talked about several places before sort of walking through suffering and the loss of your wife. And what did that teach you about the Lord uh, and about what it means to sort of be faithful when you don't understand what's going on around you? You know, um, Mary Beth Chapman and I were just chatting here a few minutes ago. I've known her and Stephen and their kids for a long time. And both of our families have had tragedy and difficulty, and as probably every family in the room has, and everybody has a story of challenges in life. Mary Beth, what'd you say? Life is a lot. Life is, it's a lot. And so I did, uh, you know, actually, my wife and I, my first wife, Carol Ann, and I, we, um, we had, I just had twin grandchildren that were born last Sunday, and one of them weighs a pound, and one of them weighs three, and my kids went through a real difficult pregnancy, and I was talking to them about our own journey. Uh, we had five pregnancies that didn't work out, and one of the babies died at birth, and so we had a really difficult strain early on in our married life, but God was very faithful to us. We had four wonderful kids after all that. Um, so we lost a child, and then my wife was killed, and that was a 
that was a life-altering uh, sort of cataclysmic event in my life that forever changed the whole trajectory of my life. And and then subsequent after that, you know, I had a, a child who, in part as a result of the tragedy of that and a whole lot of other things, but who who uh, tried to take her own life a year after that, through actually with a gunshot, shot herself in the head and almost and, and miraculously survived that event. But as a family for multiple years, it was a it was a a journey of that included wonder and joy and you know happiness and a rich full life but it was interspersed with a lot of pain and tragedy and um, questions but I will say that never ends I don't think for any of us there's different times in life when it's more severe than others and when it when it it ebbs and flows it is the richness of a bittersweet journey I've often said bittersweet is better than sweet. It has a more interesting flavor, and it's and it's just a lot richer and deeper. But what I think the Lord has shown me in that, and I was very, very grateful that I was a man of faith, not that I was a good man, but that I had a relationship that grounded and anchored me through a storm and a multitude of storms, and storms that don't ever stop. They're different intensity when they hit, but Knowing that there is a hope beyond, I, I, I think what I learned is Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullness. And I used to think a full life meant that you would be happy and peaceful and joyful. But I've really realized that fullness is happiness in the midst of struggle and joy in the midst of pain and peace in the midst of turmoil, and that in him, because of that anchor, you can you can have that in the midst of whatever my life brings. So I don't want things to happen, but I know that if they do, it's really possible to navigate that with joy and peace and, and hope. Do you think you're a different kind of governor having been through that sort of thing than you would be <laughs> Absolutely. If you, if your life I, I would gone. not be governor if I hadn't gone through those things. I would, I would not have uh, had the, the ability to run for governor and say, if this works out, it's fine, and if it doesn't, it's fine. Um, because I, I remember people saying to me, um, are you sure you want to get into politics? You know, it can be a very difficult business, and do you have thick enough skin and are you up for the, you know, for the hard stuff? And I, I wouldn't say this, but I kind of sit there and think, I, look, I know what a bad day is and that's not going to be a bad day. Uh, a bad day on the campaign trail is not a bad day. And when you have endured a bad day and, and come out on the other side of it, a richer, deeper, fuller person, then I, I used to say, when you've lost the most important thing on earth, then earth doesn't have nearly the meaning to you that it used to have. And it doesn't have a hold on you either. And it doesn't have the attractiveness that it used to either. Even though I love my life and I love the earth and I love the years that I have to do the things I'm doing, it it is not 
the things that happen here are not nearly as meaningful temporally as they used to be. Um, so it makes it a lot easier. I think it makes it a lot easier to put things in perspective. I, I can remember thinking over and over again that the number of times that I have sat around and a circumstance would happen and I'd be all worked up about it and then I'd think, wait a minute, you're going to go home this afternoon and everyone's going to be sitting around the table having dinner. Just remember, that is the end of the story here. And the ability to do that, yeah, makes a job that can be not fun at times much more doable. Is that true also, do you think, in terms of uh, you're one of the most popular governors in the United States right now, according to the polling data that may change at any, any Certainly point. could change tomorrow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Depends on good. what y'all write about this interview <laughs> right here. <laughs> Or what somebody writes yeah. about it. Uh, do you think that? Do you think that your life, kind of how, how Christ has worked in your life so far, has changed the way that you see people's approval of you? Because I think the sort of thing that somebody in your position has to confront is actually at a different level, a lower level, what everybody in this room has to deal with, which is, do I find my identity? And how people approve of me, whether that's in the workplace, in a church, in a uh, in whatever the setting is, or do I find a grounding somewhere else? At some level, and I think it even goes back to some of the difficulty in life. You know, you go through some of that stuff, and you, you I've often said, it sorts out for you what matters and what doesn't. Right? When you walk through the most difficult of circumstances, you pretty quickly you pretty quickly figure out what matters and what doesn't. And it prioritizes those things in your life. I, I can remember sitting there, like have these poignant moments in the midst of tragedy, for example. And I don't want to just talk all about that, but I remember walking into the church, my four little kids sitting on the front row, a casket sitting in front of them. And I started down the aisle to sit down for the service, you know. And I remember stopping and just thinking, there. I had a lot of thoughts. One, that I never knew what the word trust meant before until you knew that the circumstance you were looking at was not going to work out. Like, this isn't going to work out. But I trust that somehow it will when nothing that you see shows that it's going to. The ability to sort through things and put them in perspective makes things like what people think about you not matter. In a moment like that, you could care less what anybody ever thinks about you ever again. It comes back, but there's a little window up here that you never quit looking at. And when you look through that window that wasn't there before, but when you look through that window, you go, you know, it really doesn't matter what people think. And it's much easier to function when you don't matter, when you don't care what people think, when your identity is not built up in what I certainly, like any human being, I, it hurts my feelings when I read something about me that's really mischaracterized or when I'm viewed a certain way that is not at all the way I think. It, it's, you feel a little bit of injustice there. You get kind of angry about it, but it, but I don't feel insecure about the fact that they don't understand what's really in my heart about why it is that I'm doing what I'm doing. Cause I know why I'm doing it. And I know why I took this job, for example. And I know that there's automatically, you know, 30, 40 or 50% of the people that aren't going to like me and they've never even met me or heard from me. 
And that's a new thought. That's a new thing that I'd never faced before. But one thing about being a, a about actually having a relationship with Christ that was that is built not on my works but on his sustenance through life is I know where my identity comes from. And I forget it sometimes, but I can always go back there and go, you know what, I'm doing this or I'm saying this or I'm making this decision because I genuinely believe this is the right thing or the good thing or the best thing for me to do given all that I know. If people like it, good, and if they don't, Oh God, what's the worst that happens to me? Maybe I don't get reelected. You know, I didn't live to get this job in the first place. So if it didn't, if it didn't come back, that would be, that would be okay with me as long as I did what I am supposed to do going forward. And it was a little bit what happened in the campaign too. I remember people saying, you know, you're going to have to respond. You have to go negative. You have to do this. And I said, you know, what's the worst that could happen? I don't get elected. I haven't lived to get this job in the first place. So I want to, I'm going to do what I want to do and see how it works out. And, and that's a little bit how I feel about identity. My identity is not just in him, but it is being true to myself, uh, which is to the degree that I can hear and understand and, and, and follow obedience to what I think is right and good, um, following that. You know, one of the things that's a, sort of a measure for me of, of confidence and maturity when it comes to people in ministry is, for instance, my pastor. Uh, he will often pray for other congregations right around, and, and as he's praying, talk about the great things they're doing. In a way, you sit there and think, eh, people might hear that and think I'd rather go down the street there. to wherever, uh-huh. but uh, he doesn't care. And he does that in private. I remember a meeting with you in 2018. And when I came away really struck by this. I talked to Brent Leatherwood about it afterward. You were talking about how good your opponents were. Uh, all of them in both parties, you sort of went through and said, you know, these are, these are great people. They'd be, they'd be good governors. And I imagine that there were probably people who were saying, you know, you really ought to get nastier uh, <laughs> when it comes to this. You're not going to be able to make it if you don't, as you mentioned. Why do you think it's important at a time like this where everybody seems to be screaming at one another to try to find those, uh, those avenues, not just for civility, but kindness. You know, I, th- I think, I think generally people, they like to see their value system reflected in the people that are in leadership. I think they want to see that. That doesn't mean that and I don't say that we're in a we're in a room. We're talking about faith and 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 Christianity. It's my faith, and it's not that. And I traveled this state and campaigned, and there's a lot of people that were very responsive to my willingness to openly just be open about my faith and say, "Here's who I am. You need to know who I am. I'm running for governor. You ought to know about me." And 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 part of that. And I would tell all about the different things that I you know why I got interested in criminal justice reform and why I got interested in, you know, inner city education reform and why I got interested in some of the things I did, but also that I'm very clear about the fact that my faith is a very important part of who I am. I think people are interested in and appreciate seeing their value systems played out in their leaders. That doesn't mean that their leaders have to believe exactly the same way they do. And so I genuinely think people in general 
want to get along with their neighbor. They want to serve their neighbor. They want to agree uh, on the things they agree on. And when they disagree on things, that they do it in a way that's civil and that is respectful of one another. And I think that's how the general public generally wants us to operate. There is a group that don't like to operate that way. And a lot of them happen to be the ones that we hear from most. And they're and they're divisive and they and they like that and they're and they're always pitting one against the other. And I will sometimes call out even a moderator who's asking me questions, go, you know, what you're doing right there is drawing lines that that divide the audience around things that I think they don't really want to be divided around. Um, you know, I think it's important because I think that in this day of divisiveness, our country needs leadership to lead in how it is that we treat one another. I mean, people ask me about my faith, and, and, and you know, there's a lot of, you, you will find people very critical of the fact that I am open about my faith and that I called for a day of prayer, and you can read all about the people that thought that was totally inappropriate, and there are people that are uh, that are very vocal and 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 feel very strongly about the fact that I should not mix my faith with what it is that I'm doing, except that I can't not mix it because the whole reason that I am that I ran for governor was to serve people. I got involved in mentoring men coming out of prison. That is the reason this year that we will have policy on criminal justice reform around reentry and around diversion and around sentencing reform. The reason for that is because I got involved in a ministry that served a, a faith-based ministry that served men coming out of prison. I can't separate all of that. They, they run together, born out of serving. I've mentored a young man in the inner city whose mother was in prison and didn't have a dad and was in a failing school and was destined to fail. And a part of that, I worked with his grandmother to get him into a different kind of public school, which he had a much better experience. And that is the reason that I brought forth legislation last year for education savings accounts for low-income students in the worst school districts in our state that said no matter what your, what your zip code is, you ought to have access to, to the same educational opportunities that other kids in the state do. And, and that came from working in a faith-based ministry for inner-city at-risk youth, and it led right into reform educational legislation, and I can't separate those. So I don't say that I ought not to, because it's a very much very much a part of why and who it is that I'm doing. And the, and the way that faith plays out most importantly in my life is that I believe that we are called to serve people. The Lord calls us to serve the poor, to serve, uh, love our neighbors as ourselves, to to use our lives to impact other people's lives for good. That's why I care about lifting people out of poverty or giving opportunity to kids in rural areas that don't have educational opportunities or criminal justice reform that will lower the crime rate for all of us and provide opportunity for folks who wouldn't otherwise. That's what motivates, and I think it, it's not me. It's not just me that does that. that. That's the motivation for just a whole lot of people in public service. I've come to believe 
But that voice of sort of thoughtful, collective serving uh, gets drowned out by partisan, divisive partitioning that that really is not constructive for improving the lives of every single person that lives in this state, for example. You mentioned criminal justice reform. I know mm-hmm. this is something you care a lot about and yep. I care a lot about. Yep. Uh, what can we do better? And, and why does that matter for people who might uh, not have any connection with someone who's involved in the criminal justice uh, system, they think? Well, we were talking uh, today. I was talking today with with uh, one of our cabinet members about juvenile justice, um, these four kids that just escaped and from Nashville and they had, one of them had committed a homicide. And we were just talking about the issues of, of children, the broken families, why kids find themselves in that situation, how, how it is that we can do a better job. This happened to be a metro facility. It wasn't a state, um, it wasn't a state issue, but, but it affects all of us. And criminal justice reform matters for a lot of reasons. One, if you, if you just want to talk about how does it impact everybody, whether you think it impacts you or not. If you do criminal justice reform correctly, then the crime rate will be lowered in your neighborhood. That's just a bottom line. You, we, we have a 50% recidivism rate or close to it in our state, which means that when someone gets out of prison in this state, within three years, they will commit a crime and go back. And they're, they're being let out into your neighborhood and they'll commit the crimes in your neighborhood. And maybe you might say, well, not really in my neighborhood, but yeah, all over this state. So if we do it well, then the crime rate will be lowered. And just from a taxpayer caught, we, we won't pay $38,000 a year to incarcerate somebody that we could probably not incarcerate if we did the rest of it better. So it lowers the crime rate. What could we do better? We could reenter people better. I worked in a with Men of Valor. People know that's one of my favorite ministries. I served on the board forever. They have about a ten percent recidivism rate for for men who go through that program. The state has fifty percent recidivism rate. There's a reason. I mean, you can you can look at something like that and say, there's a reason that those men are not going back to prison. Let's analyze all those reasons and let's start to put some of that into practice in our Department of Correction, which we're doing and has already been done before I got there, but there's a lot of work been done already. But we could re-enter people. We, we passed a bill this year and funded in our budget an education for incarcerated, uh, educational opportunities for those incarcerated and that are going to soon be out. If you have a certificate, for example, an educational certificate, you have a 40% less likelihood of recidivating. If you have, a, if you have hope for a job and, a, and you had some educational attainment when you get out of prison, you're, you have a lot less motivation to go back, a lot less reason to consider going back. So we need to re-enter people. We, we removed expungement fees on, on folks. We're trying to educate folks when they come back. We're trying to eliminate barriers that make it difficult for people. And by the way, remember, they're all coming out, 95% of them. 5% don't, but 95% of them will re-enter society. And so we, we ought to be doing that better. And then we ought to pay attention to who we incarcerate. You know, we, my sense is that we incarcerate too many of the wrong people for the wrong reasons. And incarceration is, is it, it just makes the situation of rehabilitation worse and more difficult. So 
could we rehabilitate them and have them pay a penalty for their crime on the front end in a different way? Yes, we absolutely can. That's what drug courts and mental health courts and veterans courts, diversion, uh, diversion and alternative sentencing that allows people to that be held responsible for their crime but to do it in ways that allow them to be rehabilitated and to be productive, and this is primarily we're talking about nonviolent offenders who fill our jails today and our prison cells and become violent offenders after they get there. But, yeah, there's a lot we can do. And I'm really passionate about that subject, and I'm excited about the opportunity to do it. And, by the way, you talked about partisanship and all that. It's a very bipartisan subject, too. There, there's a Most people have come to realize that while being simply tough on crime seemed like a good thing to do 30 years ago and that it might curb uh, the crime rate. Now it's more for me, tough on crime. We have to be tough on crime. We have to have the ones that are in there for the wrong reason, they need to stay there. The, the drug traffickers, we, we strengthened and increased penalties for traffickers last year who, who, will, you know, who will actually cause death for many of our neighbors who they're trafficking to. So we have to be tough, no doubt about that. But we also have to be smart. And it used to just be be tough. Now it's be tough and smart. And if we do both of those things, then I think we can lower the crime rate, protect the citizens at the same time, recognize victims and victims' rights. It's very important that we remember victims in all of this conversation. But um, there, there's a real good balance there. I was at your place right after you named your faith-based director. And one of the, the startling things to me, I, I've worked with, countless numbers of people who are faith-based liaisons and normally it's sort of constituent building and so forth. And I said to my team, I had a lot going on. I said, I'll be there for maybe an hour and I'll be back. I ended up staying all day long and just canceling things because I immediately got on the phone in the car and said, I've never seen anything like this before. This is somebody who actually knows what he's talking about. His wife maybe even more so, yeah. uh, who was in the Which room Which is usually well. true for yeah. most of us. And uh, really, really amazingly gifted and knowledgeable and, and working through what should be done in terms of churches related to foster care, criminal justice, opioid crisis, and so forth. There are a lot of people in the room here who lead churches either in pastoral or lay capacities. What can churches do? Uh, to be involved in, in some of those those issues. I mean, so just about everybody's much. got people yeah. addicted or, or, or foster care kids around them. What, what can they do? In their church, right? Yeah. They have lots of people addicted in your church probably. And, and, and in all your population, your church is not a lot different than the population outside of your church um, in a lot of ways, as we all know. So I um, always thought this, but now that I've become the governor, I know it for sure. Um, the government isn't the answer to the greatest challenges that we face in our day. Um, it can never be that answer. There's not enough. It can never address the opioid epidemic, the, you know, the foster care situation, the, you know, as, as good a job as we do. And I can tell you, I am incredibly impressed with and, Yes, we make mistakes in state government, but our Department of Children's Services and our Department of Human Services and our Department of Correction and the people that run those organizations are so committed to serving the poor and to taking care of kids in need and in crisis and to, uh, to working with, to provide safety for citizens and work with 
the incarcerated. We've got incredibly committed people throughout every organization of our state government, and we can never even begin to touch the, the vastness of the challenges that lay before us. Government can't solve it. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough people. Uh, government's not the most efficient, you know, operators in the world. And so it takes partnerships to do this. Like I think vocational, technical, agricultural education ought to be in every high school. Y'all have heard me all talk about that. I'm very passionate about that subject because of my background in private sector. And I said, high school should look different in Tennessee. So we created the GIVE Act, the Governor's Investment Vocational Education Act, and, and, and put $25 million grants and programs all over schools. But you know where the most powerful um, piece of that whole vocational thing works is when a company decides that they will connect with a school and provide equipment and instruction and engage in that program, that's when kids learn things that they really need to learn. And when a, you know, we can have, we, I can say every Tennessean ought to have access to high quality healthcare they can afford. But the only way that's going to happen is if our, Federal And we can do policy, block grants. There's a lot of different ways that we could provide for more government-funded health care, for example, in real far-reaching communities. But we can never solve that problem with the government alone. You, you know what really does that? And we put $15 million into what we call the health care safety net. It's faith-based clinics, federally qualified clinics, community clinics. It's people out there recognizing that the working poor and, uh, and, and, and regular citizens can't afford this escalating cost of health care that's out of control unless we do something to, to rein that in. It's a mixed message there. It can't happen without engagement from nonprofits, the private sector, and I believe powerfully the faith community and churches. Mental health in the mental health needs in our communities are staggering. The opioid epidemic is staggering. The needs of children in schools in areas that have a tremendous breakdown of family and low-income students who are faced with all kinds of obstacles that others might not be faced with. You know, a church, churches that adopt a school or engage in providing services for kids that that otherwise wouldn't have those services, it completely changes the outcomes in that school. You know, we, we did something called the Volunteer Mentorship Initiative. You want to know what changes a man's life in prison? It's when another man goes and visits him once a month and spends two or three hours with him and encourages him about what it's going to be like when he gets out and what he can do and how he can help and what it changes people's lives. I mentored a little kid in the inner city and he changed my life every week for five years, drove into his neighborhood, picked him up, went to, went to McDonald's or the park or something and spent a couple hours with him, changed my life forever. And his too, I bet. When, when, when churches engage, when nonprofits engage, when companies engage, when the people engage in this government of the people, then 
government then can be effective because it creates, government exists to create an environment where the solutions can be leveraged, where we can, where we can, you know, pitch in and start something and then it's finished by the people in that community. I'm a strong believer in that and churches have a powerful role. And I, I got to be honest, I remember before I ran and I think it's kind of true too, I, I find myself thinking the church and the nonprofit community, but especially the church, and I don't care what church that is or what religious organization it is, the church is probably one of the most underutilized and under-empowered by their own admission, I, I guess, or by their own choice. But the church could do a powerful job that it does not do with the poor, the broken, the homeless, the helpless, the, the children. The, it, it, there's just so much that could be done out there that is not being done that I believe the church is missing an opportunity to do it. It's one of the reasons we have this Office of Faith-Based Initiative to just say, we're, we're, we just want to be a liaison. We just want to communicate. Here's how you could. Here's who's doing what. Here's who's doing what over on this end of the state and that end of the state, and they could share resources or collaborate together or because there's a tremendous amount of work being done by nonprofits and churches that is, assist the state, but not nearly what could or should be done. I know you have to get to your next thing, but before you go, for all the people in this room, whether they're Democrats or Republicans or independents or whether they're pastors or lay people or whatever it is that they are, when they pray for you as a brother in Christ, uh, what would you ask them to pray for? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Usually I tell people to pray for my family. It's probably hardest. The price paid personally is probably hardest for my family. Just the price you pay relationally and every other way for your kids and your grandkids. And, and so I, I appreciate prayers for my family. I think too, you know what I'd ask you to do? It's not pray for me. I, this morning, actually, when I was praying, was having my time of prayer and reflection and reading. And and um, I found myself, I had been, I'd read about a, a school shooting in, uh, in another state and I was reading about, uh, you know, I had, not this morning, but previous last night, I'd read about issues around the state. And so I spent time this morning just asking God to grant his favor on our state, that we wouldn't have a school shooting. There's all kind of, that we wouldn't, that, that our opioid epidemic would become better, that our, you know, that our educational outcomes would improve, that our the number of people who require assistance would diminish because of the economy. You know, all of the policies we do and the things, the legislation that we pass and the efforts that we make from my office all the way through the legislature, those are all attempts at improving all of those things. So wisdom about how to do that, you know, how do you really, how do you really lift people out of poverty? I mean, there's a very complicated subject and they pass all kinds of bills that do that. Or how do you improve educational outcomes? Or how do you lower the opioid addiction rate? through our Department of Mental Health and, and, and Substance Abuse Services. But as a person of faith, I will... So faith without works is dead, which is why we serve our neighbor, right? It's why you run for governor or do, or do what you do. It's whatever, whatever you're doing to, that you're not doing for yourself is your faith in action. 
And we do that by trying to pass legislation and pass laws and do this and do that. But as a person of faith and as people of faith who believe that the prayers of the righteous accomplish much and that that praying is not just a nice thing to do, but that God actually hears and responds to the prayers of those who ask him to move on behalf of other people. And as a, a man who has lived through 60 years now of up and down life, and I know for sure that he answers prayer, I would, I would say you ought to pray for those things in our state. Those things can happen through good leaders and legislation and work and nonprofits and what you do and all that. And also, if God grants his favor on our state. That's why I called for a day of prayer and fasting. It wasn't to be a religious statement or to... It's because I believe if millions of people across the state ask God to, to grant us favor, just like he granted this country favor and has for hundreds of years... I mean, his favor has been on our country in a lot of ways. And you can argue that, you know, where it is today, but he grants favor to, to nations and to states and to people and to families and to individuals and who ask him to. And um, so I'd ask you to pray for our state. Yeah. Thank you, Governor, for being with us today. Would you join me in thanking Thank Governor you. Bill Lee? This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip